When I was at primary school, there was a young lad in my class who was a Jehovah's Witness. And uh, I only really found out about what was different about him towards the end of primary school. But I always knew there was something different about him because when the rest of us went to school assembly, he would stay in the classroom with the teacher. Or, and over time, more differences emerge. You know, at different times of the year, we might be, say, asked to paint the pictures, to, to sort of mark Halloween, or write a poem about Christmas. And he would always tell the teacher he wasn't allowed to do it, because his family didn't observe such things. And I remember one teacher in particular, on occasions, giving him a really hard time over it. He says, you know, what do you mean you won't do it? Everyone else is doing it. What's so special about you? And I'm pretty sure, quite rightly, he wouldn't get away with that today. But it must have been really scary for a young lad, maybe 10, 11, standing up to a much bigger teacher. And it doesn't matter whether I agreed with him, uh, but I have to admit, when I think about it, I can't even admire him looking back. You know, I had quite a strict religious upbringing, and there were, there were certain things we did or didn't do because we were Christians, you know. We didn't watch TV on Sundays in my house unless it was the news or maybe songs of praise. So if the show everyone was talking about was on on a Sunday, and it was never going to be songs of praise they were all talking about, yeah, I, you know, I kind of felt out of the conversation. And when they started showing live football on a Sunday afternoon, that was when I really started to kind of feel it. Or my family didn't go to the cinema. So for years, I felt like I was the only person in the world who hadn't seen Star Wars. And I felt a bit excluded, but actually mainly just jealous. But the thing was, I wasn't being singled out for being different. Okay, maybe we were a bit stricter than some other households. But in Northern Ireland, at least in that era, we we were still part of a dominant culture. I mean, I do wonder how I would have coped in that guy's position. Because he probably had more in common with the people in Pergamum to whom John was writing than I did. But that doesn't mean that there was nothing there for me or for us. Because we've been working through these seven letters which are found at the beginning of Revelation, the last book of the Bible. And these are seven letters written to seven churches in Asia Minor or Turkey towards the end of the first century. And although they all were broadly in the same area, each was quite different. They had different strengths, different weaknesses, they faced different challenges. And I've acknowledged that so far that it's not always easy to work out exactly what's going on or what's being said in Revelation. And it's a path that's best trod gently, carefully and humbly, recognising that difficulty. Well, it's actually true of any part of the Bible, really. But it's even more so in Revelation, where, which can feel quite obscure and makes lots of use of symbolic language. For a start, when we pick up any letter, primarily addresses someone else, we realise that we are only picking up one half of the conversation. There's a man from the church I attended before I trained for ministry who writes me loads of letters. And I mean loads. Uh, And I will receive, I know I'm going to receive quite a few over the next few weeks. 
because he's a huge rugby fan. And the guy has a learning disability and his letters are very short, they're very basic and I can probably tell you more or less precisely word for word what it is going to say before I open it. So this week I know I will get one and because Ireland won yesterday, just about, uh, he will ask me if I danced an Irish jig when Ireland beat Scotland 1912. There might then be another line about his hamster after that. I have to say if I did dance an Irish jig it wouldn't be pretty. But in 2,000 years, imagine 2,000 years, there's an archaeological dig in this area and uh, someone you know, uh, digs up this a letter from this guy to me. You know, they might find themselves wondering what an Irish jig was. And they certainly wouldn't know, more importantly, if I danced one in response to it. And it's the same with Bible letters. Sometimes we, we, we can have a good guess at what issues they're addressing. But we don't really know. And we don't know how the letter was received. We don't know whether they did what they were told to do or asked to do or encouraged to do. And some of the language and images used might have made perfect sense to them but can seem quite obscure, even irrelevant to us. And that's certainly true of the letter to Pergamum. And that's sort of looking up towards Pergamum there. Uh, what, What is it with this sword imagery? What does it mean to say, this is where Satan lives and has his throne? Who's this Antipas bloke? Who are the Nicolaitans? Who are... What have they got to do with a bit of an Old Testament story, a bit of an obscure one about a guy called Balaam and Balak and whatever? Presuming, you know, I'm not presuming we even know there was an Old Testament story like that. And, and what's all this about hidden manners and white stones? You can kind of see why people stay clear of this stuff. But there is another approach you can take. You can ask, is there stuff that we know about Pergamum that might help us to unpack it a little? It doesn't need to be from the Bible, which is just as well, because Pergamum doesn't appear anywhere else in the Bible. But there is a lot from ancient and classical history and archaeology can help us. So far we have talked, we've looked a bit at Ephesus and Smyrna. And they they were quite prosperous cities. Well, Pergamum was also quite prosperous, but for a different reason. Ephesus and Smyrna lay on major trade routes. Everything that flowed across the Roman Empire had to go through one of these two trade places. So they became quite strong commercial centres. Pergamon was slightly different. It was what we would call the public sector that made Pergamum great. It was the administrative centre of Roman rule on that region. It was set on a big hill that could be seen for miles around. The name meant citadel or fortress. And this was where Rome controlled everything. 
This was where the empire was at its strongest. Pergamon was a great cultural centre. In the ancient world, the library at Pergamon was second only to the library at Alexandria. And the competition between the two libraries was so fierce that Egypt refused to export papyrus to Pergamon because they didn't want to be overtaken. And the plan backfired spectacularly because the people of Pergamon invented parchment in response to not being able to get papyrus. And in time, parchment replaced papyrus as the main kind of thing people used to write on. And at the centre of the culture was religious life. And Pergamum was a highly religious culture. There was temples for the worship of anything you can think of in Pergamum. There was a temple to the goddess Athena. She was the goddess of wisdom and war. And this is the kind of site of the temple as they've excavated it today. There was a centre to, a major centre to the god Asclepios or Ascalopios, or you know, it varies according to who's saying it, the god of healing. And this was probably the closest thing they had to a hospital. And if you went to the Ascalopion and you said, this is my illness, and you got better, one of the things that that you would do to show your gratitude is that you would have a model of the body part that has healed made up, and then you would present it to the temple as to say, this is what Ascalopios or Asclepios did for me. And what's kind of interesting, the reason I kind of mention that bit, is because the other place where there was a major temple to Ascalopius was Corinth. And when they excavated the temple at Corinth, they found thousands upon thousands of body parts, which kind of adds a whole other level to sort of Paul saying, you know, one body, many parts. It's kind of what the image is kind of drawing on. Another interesting thing about Ascalopios is that he is presented carrying a staff with a serpent on it. And the reason I mention that is because this association with a serpent and healing still persists today. Many medical organisations will have, as part one of their symbols, a staff with a serpent on it. And that includes our own Royal College of Physicians, which you can see on the right of that picture. And in Christian thought, the serpent has often been linked with Satan. And some think that John was talking, this was what John was talking about when he talked about Satan having his home there and Satan having his throne there. But actually, as we're digging around, we'll probably find there are better explanations. There was another major temple, this one to a god called Demeter. And Demeter was the god of harvest and grain. She's often been referred to as the the goddess of groceries. And she was the one that they sacrificed to, to pray for harvest or to give thanks for harvests. 
And then there was another one nearby cut to Dionysus, who is probably better known to us as Bacchus, who was the god of wine, festivity and wild frenzy. Dionysus was the god of the party. And worshipping Dionysus would involve lots of drinking of wine and revelry. And when you drank the wine of Dionysus, you know, in worship of Dionysus, you were said to be filled with the spirit of Dionysus. Which adds a little more depth to our understanding of another verse from Paul to the church in Ephesus, which was just up the road, and, and Pergamon probably would have received this letter too, saying, warning them or encouraging them not to get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit of God. And then there was another temple to Zeus, the god of sky and thunder. And they've been able to excavate quite a bit of the temple to Zeus. And, uh, and to cre- enough to create a replica of what it looks like. I think this picture is from Berlin, but I'm not sure. And the, but the altar was said to resemble a royal throne. And some believe this might be refer- the place where, which is referred to as where Satan has his throne. And it might well pick up on some of that imagery. But there is another option. Because it was also, because it was the administrative centre of the empire, it was also the centre of the cult of Caesar. In 9 BC, Caesar Augustus, you know, who issued a decree that all the world should be taxed, well, he issued another decree that Pergamum should be allowed to build a temple to worship him as a son of God. And loyalty to the empire brought its rewards. Even today, in our government... You will have, when the leader's trying to persuade people who might be wavering in their support, he might call a few of them in and he might say, well, there's a, you know, there's a major new contract coming up and you have that factory in your constituency and you know, if you just support us on this, you know, we could make certain some of that money comes your way. You can get that contract. You know? There's votes in that for you. Well, that sort of thinking is at least as old as Rome. Because if you were a city like Pergamum and you couldn't rely on trade coming back and forward, like, say, Ephesus of Smyrna, this was an attractive proposition. If you were loyal, you know, you might get some of that Roman cash. Or if you're frightened of people around you and you want a bit of protection, it's kind of nice to know who your friends are. And if you've got the big guys, all the better. It made sense. And in the period fall immediately after Revelation was written, after the death of Domitian, the next emperor was a guy called Trajan, and they, he had a massive temple built for the worship of Caesar as God's representative on earth, and it was built a Pergamum. And it was a massive thing. This is a sort of artist's depiction of how it might well have looked. As the administrative centre of the province, the governor of Pergamum 
was responsible for ensuring Roman rule was preserved. And to help them do this, he was given the power of the sword. The power of the sword. It was the power of life or death. You could do what he says. You could be loyal. And things would go well. Alternatively, there's always the other end of the sword. And that was the atmosphere in which the people of Pergamum lived. That was the environment in which those who had taken the name of Jesus lived. So let's see if we now we know kind of all that. I know that was quite a bit, but now we know that. Let's see if we can make something of what John is saying here. So John writes to the angel of the church in Pergamum, right? These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live. Sounds more threatening than an Irish accent, doesn't it? I know, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. He said, I know that you live in a place where it is really tough to be a follower of Jesus. It's a place where the entire life is centered on Rome, on the empire. It's a place where the temples pile on top of each other. Where the air is thick with the smoke and the stench of constant sacrifices to gods who are constantly needing to be appeased, who constantly need your loyalty and who need to be kept on side. You know, that's quite literally the air you breathe. And then you've got a governor. And you're looking to that governor for provision and security. He's demanding your loyalty. And he's got you under the sword. He's got the power of life and death of you. But in the face of that, Jesus says, I'm the one who's worthy of your loyalty. I'm the one who truly holds your life in my hands. I started with an image of a little kid stood up before a teacher who was so much bigger and stronger. I might not agreed with that have agreed with that kid. I might not have even thought that the things he was standing up for were particularly that important or that I would have stood up for them. But it still must have been a miniature model of what it was like to be a follower of Jesus in Pergamum. And of course most of us, for the most part, won't find ourselves having to make that kind of choice. But we can find ourselves in groups or environments where the culture is quite hostile to Jesus and how he wants us to live. It might not be quite so blatant, but we might be in cultures where the atmosphere is one of gossip. Backbiting and snapping against one another. And you say, I'm not taking part in that. And you feel quite excluded. Or you're in an atmosphere 
which has got a really heavy drinking culture. Or they go to certain clubs. Or it's a bit loose on the kind of sexual ethics. What goes on in the office stays in the office. Who's sleeping with who? Or the time sheets or the expense claims or the invoices are slightly less than 100% honest. Everyone else is doing it. Why don't you? And being the one who won't play the game can leave you excluded or isolated. A while ago, I was talking to a really, really good friend. And it is a while ago now because uh, the story's a bit older. But he was telling me about he supports a particular football club, and they were they had just recently sacked their manager, and he was quite glad they had sacked their manager. And the reason he was glad they had sacked their manager was not because he was a Christian. But because, he says, the manager had been trying to introduce all those Christian principles into the dressing room. He says, and he says, even you, Andrew, must agree with me that there's no place for God in the football field. Which I thought was a bit presumptuous. But hey, or I'm reminded of a story of a guy who was a porter in a large organisation who one day was in the manager's office and the phone went. And the manager picked the phone up and handed it to the the porter and said, tell them I'm out. And the porter handed the phone back to him and said, you tell them it. And the manager was ready to sack him for disobeying an order when the porter said to him, if I can lie for you, I can lie to you. How are you going to know you can trust me? And he went on to become one of the most trusted people in the organisation, even though he never got promoted once. And in such an environment, our first instinct might be to flee, to get out. You know, you might be sitting with somebody and they'll tell you all this sort of stuff, and you might say, you know, if I were you, I'd get another job. But the truth is that maybe we are actually called to be there and to be different there. And that's not easy. It wasn't in Pergamum. They had been faithful, but it hadn't been easy. John goes on to say, you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city. The truth is, we don't know much about Antipas. He doesn't appear anywhere else in the New Testament. Uh, The second century Christian writer Tertullian suggests that he was the first Christian martyr in Asia Minor. And he was killed by being roasted alive in a kettle during the reign of Domitian. So around the time of Revelation. And thankfully that's not a norm for us. But the chances are actually nor was it for them. The fact that it's kind of one name is mentioned suggests that maybe it wasn't quite widespread, at least at that stage, that it was more 
kind of the social isolation and the not fitting in was the real problem. Because that's the impression you get from what he says next. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin, so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will come to you and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. What's going on here? There is there's a strange story in the book of Numbers in the Old Testament. The Israelites are in a battle with the Moabites. And Balak, who was the king of the Moabites, is trying to win. And he's trying to get this prophet called Balaam to call down a curse or to prophesy against the Israelites. To kind of ensure that he'll win the battle. But no matter what he tried, Balaam was taking the money and he was trying to do it, but he just found he couldn't. Every time he tried to curse Israel, he wound up blessing them. And whatever he tried, he kept blessing them. And basically what it was saying was direct attack had failed. So Balaam came up with a more subtle ploy. Wine, women and song. And I don't know the whole background to it, but apparently it seems that Israelite men had a bit of a thing for Moabite women. When you read the story of Ruth, that's a big thing in that story. So what Balaam does is throw a bit of a party. Get them drunk. Get them eating some food they shouldn't. And then when they're feeling nice and relaxed, send in the women and seduce them. And it shows that things haven't changed much Because the way that story was remembered in Israel wasn't about a bunch of men who couldn't keep their hands to themselves. It was a story about those tempters at Moab. When direct attack failed, basically Israel was making the subtle seduction of what they couldn't have work the treat. And that's what John and Jesus is saying happened at the Pergamum. He says, it hadn't been easy in that environment. They'd had direct attack, but it hadn't worked. They'd stayed true. But there was another more subtle line of attack coming in from within. There were those within the church who didn't want to stand out, who just didn't want to be different. They could see stuff going on around them and to be quite honest, some of it looked quite nice and appealing, thank you very much. And following Jesus was all very well. But they didn't need to stand out, did they? I mean, look what happened to Antipas. Really? You think that's good for us? Everyone else is doing it. What's the harm? And John isn't saying don't have non-Christian friends. But he is telling them, watch how you behave in front of them. And that there will be times when you have to say, nope, not doing that, not going there, not getting involved in that. My loyalty first and foremost is to Jesus. Because the world really needs to see the difference Jesus can make in our lives. And if the people who claim to follow Jesus just blur into the background and don't look any difference. 
what good are we? And just as big a problem was that it wasn't being challenged. Because these people, were, it seems, were few in number. But nobody was seeking to say, like, now, destructive path, pull away. And the letter continues, Repent therefore, otherwise I will come to you and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. In the New Testament, the sword is pretty much always linked with the truth. And Jesus is urging them, Change my way, else I'm going to confront you with the truth. When we stumble from the truth, it is God's longing to turn us back, to return to him, to help us see the error of our ways. It isn't first and foremost about punishment. It's about confronting us with the truth to return to what he wants of us. But the challenge comes with a promise. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. We can't be totally sure what these are. There are a number of ideas. But manna was the food with which God fed Israel in the wilderness. And when they entered the promised land, there was a container with some of this manna was put in the Ark of the Covenant. And legend had it that when the temple was destroyed by the Babylonians, the prophet Jeremiah had got hold of this uh, container of manna and he had hidden it at Sinai. And when the, and, but no one knew where it was and when the Messiah came, uh, then it would be found. But perhaps it's just more simple than that. Manna was kind of a mystery substance. Its name literally means, what's that? It mysteriously fed the children of Israel in the trial of the wilderness. So perhaps what Jesus is saying is, stay true to me. I will look after you. I will give you strength and you don't know where it's coming from to keep it going. And there are loads of possible meanings for the white stone, by the way. Lots of these stones, apparently, this is what, there were lots of stones pretty much like this found in the area around Pergamum. Didn't have that particular writing on, but yeah, it's, it's, a, it's suggested in courts when people voted and decided whether a person was innocent or guilty, they voted with white or black beans or stones. So if it was white, you were innocent, black, they were guilty. It's also been suggested that such stones granted admission to great feasts in the temple. Or when athletes won an award, they were given a white stone which guaranteed them admission to future events. Like, you know, a bit like the Wimbledon winner uh, being given membership privileges at the All England Club. Or they found amulets with the names of a god on it. And it said if you carried that amulet, you would be able to call on that god for protection. Which is it? Maybe we don't have to choose. Maybe they all contribute to a picture. Because we may not face the same trials experienced by the people in Pergamum. But maybe each of us, in different ways, 
has to examine the culture we live in, that we work in, that can be so easily become just like the air we breathe. And check, how are we living in the light of that? Are we faithful to what's called upon a calling place upon us? Or do we just fade into the background? Do we want the challenges of being different? Because staying true can at times make you feel isolated and unwelcome. But Jesus says, if we are, he will sustain us. We will always be welcome with him. Because that's what this table symbolizes. The welcome of God. The one who is worthy of our loyalty. Because he has given himself for us. The one who says we can always call on him. And he will be with us. The one who holds the keys of life and death. And will never let us go. Grace. And peace to you.